0: Hi, this is Jamie Marconette, Senior Director, Music Insights and Industry Relations at Luminate. You're listening to the Your Morning Coffee podcast with my friends Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Weekly music news for the new music business.
1: For music business worldwide, on-demand audio streams grew 13.5% to reach $616.5 billion in the U.S. and five other key stats from Luminate's mid-year report. And from Hypebot, predatory ticket resellers cost artists
2: confused fans millions. Neato study shows. Yeah.
1: And from Billboard, there's a free mobile app helping teens crash the hot 100. And it's not TikTok. Mm. What? Not TikTok? Surely there's a typo there, Jay. Well, we are going to get deep into it and we're going to start the podcast right about now.
3: Stand by for transmission.
4: This is London Calling. Wake
3: up! The revolution is at hand. Your morning coffee is on the air.
1: So good to see you on good to see a you. damn hot day, oh, baby. It is super toasty hot. in SoCal today. Yes, yes it is. I was, as I mentioned to you, I was out and about in your neighborhood and ooh, it was hot. Ooh, it was hot. You're brave. You can go outside. I am brave, indeed, indeed. But what a, a good week, and uh, fun yeah. to be talking about these stories, oh, and yeah. it was fun to drop our uh, special with Jamie uh, Marcanet from oh, Luminate. Yeah, and thanks, last week. thanks, Jamie, for the intro to the show this week. Yeah, He is
2: he is just the best. We had such a great conversation. If you haven't heard the bonus episode, um, we sat down with Jamie and talked about the Luminate mid-year report, which we're going to cover uh, a little bit uh more today uh, with this music business worldwide uh story but uh, we really
1: appreciate the uh, fine folks over at uh, luminate for sure and i have been using the phrase eye popping uh, some of the stuff in it was eye popping when we first looked at it, it's like oh my goodness yeah wow and very encouraging so, too a lot of good yeah. news yeah, it is. And you're going to make an appearance uh, over at the L.A. College of Music this week, I think, aren't yeah. you? Jay?
2: Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Uh, on Monday, um, with my friend Jeff Mayfield, um, they've invited me to come over and talk a little bit about the new music business and about uh, the data platform Viberate and some other things. Uh, really looking forward to that on Monday, uh, L.A. College of Music, uh, with Jeff Mayfield.
1: I think you should wear your Hogwarts uh, professorial <laughs> <laughs> big tunic when you go over there for that. And oh my gosh!
2: Can you imagine? I love working with colleges. I work with six of them, and it's just the highlight of my career because these kids, as I call them, uh, they're yeah. so much sharper uh, than than I was at that age. You know, standing on the shoulders of giants. They are entrepreneurs. They're learning. They are. They ask great questions. Really looking forward to that. Um, and also this last week, uh, Mike brandwold and I dropped episode. You ready for this? Episode number 573 of the uh, Music Gosh. Biz Weekly uh, podcast. Um, I don't know if I told you, but a, a couple of months ago, we passed a million downloads, which was really cool. And Oh, I, my goodness. Yeah, Good I've been doing it with Mike for a long time. And this last week, our episode was one of our favorite episodes. And... Uh, it's basically about different tools that we're using in marketing and Mm -hmm. it it evolves and changes. And we do this show like, I don't know, every six months or or so. And we hadn't planned on recording that particular show this week, but we had a guest uh, drop out at the last minute. And I said, Hey Mike, I've been using this new tool. What do you think? And we just said, "Let's, let's record about, you know, kind of our favorite tools. So Um, If you get a chance, listen to the brand new episode that just dropped, uh, Music Biz Weekly Podcast, number 573. I think it's all of our favorite sort of uh, marketing tools. And before we hit record, I wanted to mention that you and I are big fans of Bobby Osinski. We talked about him last week on the podcast. Mm -hmm. And he's got an AI workshop this coming week that I'm attending, and I'll, I'll report back. Um, and hopefully you can attend some of those as well. I but will
1: as well, yeah, for sure. Day
2: one is AI Basics. That's Monday. Day two is AI Tools. And then day three is Next Steps. And this is at 1 p.m. West uh, West Coast, uh, 4 p.m. East Coast. And uh, Bobby Osinski, AI Workshops this week. And
1: they're free. Go sign up. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, really looking forward to that. Because, you know, like, like we've said, there's so many flavors of AI. And people just throw out the... The global phrase AI, and you know, there's just some uh, just remarkable and amazing tools yeah. on the recording side, and it's just it's. But you gotta, there's just a lot to know, and so to and have a workshop like this, you and I
2: have a friend free, like Bobby, who's yeah, he's already looked at like over a hundred of these different platforms, yeah. services, tools, things. And so I'm really excited uh, to to dig into that with Bobby. Um, before we hit record, a couple of quick things. One is uh, in your Morning Coffee, the newsletter, I often feature um, one of our favorite podcast series, and that's the Song Sommelier. Uh, and yes. it is just one of the best just series of podcasts because Keith Jopling interviews artists about their career and, you know, How do you stay in this business as long as you have? And he's got so many, so many great episodes. But uh, um, I had a a chat with uh, Keith this last week, um, just telling him how much I love Song Sommelier. Let's listen into a couple of minutes of that conversation. So Keith, thanks so much for joining me today. Um, For those that don't know, uh, you created the Art of Longevity podcast and you once said that when you started the podcast, that people said artists wouldn't discuss the business side of music. Um, talk about that a little bit and talk about uh, the art of longevity.
4: Uh, thanks, Jay. Thanks for uh, having me on this conversation. Um, yeah, it's one of the things they said. Um, and who was they? I mean, you know, I, people in the industry, people in the media side, um, they said two things. One, the artists they said the artists wouldn't be able to articulate the business side very well, or, or wouldn't want to talk about it. Um, and, uh, and also, the artists don't want to talk about the past, they want to focus on, you know, the current project, uh, uh, or, you know, what's next. And both of those didn't turn out to be the case, you know, they, they really didn't. i, I found <laughs> artists to be very articulate. About the business situation in the industry, they're at the sharp end of it, you know, and <laughs> um, and very happy to talk about their past once they're comfortable. And that that was the thing. It's it, it's all about getting them comfortable. Yeah, yeah.
2: We'll talk about the podcast. It's one of my favorite things to listen to. There's so many different episodes and no two are exactly alike. How did you come up with this? And uh, tell us a little bit about, for those who haven't listened, uh, talk about what it is.
4: Yeah, thank you. So The Art of Longevity is uh, a podcast I created to hear the kind of conversation with the artist that I wanted to hear and, and couldn't get anywhere. I just wasn't hearing it, which was something of real perspective uh something frank again you know we talked about you know going back in history um definitely covering the failures as well as as the successes so the ups and downs of their careers the dark times and sometimes there's been dark decades for some of these artists as well <laughs> um and uh, i wanted to hear that perspective from the artist not just you know what they're doing right now or what it was like at the peak of their career when, when they were in the charts or on a wave of some music trend here at you know or other uh, yeah. but everything about what's happened kind of in between and also the more um when they've gone off piste a little bit and they've been more experimental or whatever just, uh, what are their favorite phases of their career and what's been important to them so i didn't hear it anywhere else so I just thought, well, I'll, I'll create it. Uh, you know, I just that's that's what podcasters do most times is is create something they're not hearing anywhere else. And so I went ahead and did it. I, I wasn't sure, of course, um, probably like all, all people who've started a podcast, whether anybody anyone would join me. Uh, <laughs> and then, you know, um, bless him, one of the first people I I asked, partly because I thought they they might do it. Uh, was was Ollie Knights of Turin Breaks. He's the singer of the band Turin Breaks is one of my favorite bands, and I've been yeah. following their story and I asked I asked Ollie to do it and I asked um the the manager of Duran Duran if I could I thought I'll shoot for the moon and I'll also go for someone who I think might do it. Uh, and Ollie said yes, bless him. so he was the first guest and he was absolutely amazing entered into the spirit of it wholly. Duran Duran, I haven't done yet, but they will do it. I, I've been told they'll do it and I think they'll do it and I'm looking forward to it.
2: Yeah. I think my favorite one so far is, uh, tears for fears only because, you know, I know those guys, I know the story of course. and it, what's interesting is you tend to ask questions and bring things out that they don't typically talk about in interviews. It sounds like two people just getting together for a drink and talking and we get to kind of listen in. Um, are there any highlights over all of these episodes that you've done for you?
4: Well, firstly, just on that point about getting together and having a chat that I'm glad you brought that up and that you hear it that way. Cause that's how I wanted to, it to be. It's like dropping in on a phone call or as if we were at the bar having a beer yes. or, or a cocktail or something um and by the way there's something else I'm working on um which will involve exactly that scenario so it's a little bit more even relaxed and laid back than than the art of longevity so I'm glad you brought that up favorite bits you know I mean there have been some favorite episodes and they're usually with the unexpected people so um on the one hand it's been wonderful to interview um people that i consider to be my musical heroes um mm-hmm. and that would be you know indie bands like death Cab for Cutie, um a classic artist like suzanne vega they're all on my favorites list you know so when they agree to do yeah. it I it's it's wonderful because i i don't have to prep that much by way of understanding their catalogue i just need to focus on what i would always dream about asking them and then just staying calm and not you know not getting starstruck but i enjoy yeah. those interviews so much but the other the other side of it is you take someone like Narina palo um, who's a, a UK-based singer-songwriter who, you know, had moderate success at some point in the early 2000s. And I'm vaguely, uh, was vaguely familiar with her work, and then I've really enjoyed episodes like that because, first of all, the prep is like, it, it's a form of, the deepest form of discovery. And diving into the catalogue of someone like Narena, she's, everything she does is class, you know. Um, she writes real songs, they're genreless uh, and her story's been interesting because she had moderate success and then she's one of those artists that for forever is on the industry swings and roundabouts like one label at a time, you know um, she's had different managers, she's now self-managed. she's been through the ringer of the ups and downs. And so when I interviewed Narena, she was a terrifically articulate. she was friendly. She was willing to talk about anything, and she was super insightful. And I just loved that conversation. And there's been a bunch like that with artists that actually either pitched to come on or their PRs or their managers pitched to come on. And I thought, well, I don't know them. Should I I take the time here to, to get to know this artist? And it's so rewarding when I've done that.
2: Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us today, Keith. Keep up the great work. Um, uh, much success for uh, uh, more episodes of The Art of Longevity. Well,
4: I'm glad you're a fan, Jay, because I'm a fan of everything you do, and it's it's just great. It's affirmation, because sometimes when you do a podcast and, you know, the numbers are good, but they're not, you know, it's not huge like a radio show or something that's, you know, front and center on one of the platforms. It's a cult podcast, essentially. You know, we do a few (laughs) thousand downloads each episode. But when I hear people like you say they love it, It's important. And so it's it's real affirmation for doing it. So thanks. Thanks for having me on and keep doing everything you're doing.
1: Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. So great. And again, best name ever for 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 this it's like yeah. the song sommelier of course you know I wish I yeah. thought of that and yeah. and you know trademarked it as a matter of fact but I did not yeah. and uh good good on him man he's such a great guy and yeah, just he's he's fantastic Yeah, love listening and if you look at the podcast series each
2: one the cover has like this um unique sketch of that artist it's just beautiful it's, i mean it's just yeah. one of the best done uh, podcasts out there and if, if you don't know who keith jopling is you know he used to be with spotify years ago he's with sony music but he works with one of our favorite companies media right mm. we all we often talk about mark mulligan and tatiana sarasano and you know we we follow media very very closely um, so check out the song Sommelier. One of the best, uh, the, the podcast is the art of longevity. And I believe he's got an episode coming up with Corey Taylor. Um, but again, uh, don't miss it. It
1: is one of those things that you will fall into the rabbit hole. It's so well worth your time. Absolutely. Hey, we also want to thank our sponsors because every week Jay and I get to do the show and we certainly appreciate the folks that, uh, whose shoulders we stand on And after that big Mexican dinner last night, I'm a little heavier than I was last weekend. Uh, But hey, want to thank Hypebot. Since 2004, Hypebot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It is edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Alana Bonilla. Hypebot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town.
2: By the way, Bands in Town was one of our favorite uh, platforms on that episode of Music Business. Weekly. Oh, um, speaking of bands in town, over 74 million live music fans trust bands in town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It's a number one artist services platform connecting over 560,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own
1: dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. Yes, and big thanks to the Music Business Association, which creates the rooms in which the important conversations that shape our industry's future take place. We know when we work together, our industry, your business, and your people will be stronger. Our membership represents every major segment of the global music business, including labels and distributors, music streaming, retail and wholesale, publishers and pros, rights management and metadata, artist managers, tech and startups, all kinds of great stuff. Go over to Music. Biz.org for more information. Big thanks to the Music Business Association, HypeBots, and Bands in Town. Yes, sir. Totally, totally appreciate yeah, that. We do. And of course, I get to hang out every week with that bon vivant, man about town, (laughs) the guy with the Hogwarts big tunic on, Wow! my good friend, Mr. Jay Gilbert. He's a music industry consultant. He's a curator of the weekly Your Morning Coffee newsletter and a former executive with Universal, Sony, and Warner Music Groups.
2: Ah, yes, sir. And uh, this gentleman across from me is longtime host of Sound & Vision Radio, Mike Etchart, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital... EMI and Universal Music Groups. And you and I, before we hit record, we were talking about this really cool video uh, we saw, and I added it to your morning coffee. So it's in there under the headline Playlistification. <laughs> I'm trying to say that three times fast Playlistification and the Crushing Ubiquity of Cheap Music. And we saw this on Hypebot, and it is phenomenal. So don't miss this video. And it It says, according to Luminate, our friends at Luminate, 42% of tracks, um, of 66 million tracks on music services, get less than 10 streams, and 24% have no streams at all. Uh, Quote, there's too much new
1: music, and most of it sucks, end quote. Unbelievable. And this is, uh, Venus Theory is his... I don't know uh, uh, professional name, but his real name is Cameron. Sound uh, sound designer, yeah. musician, and YouTuber based outside of Nashville. Super great, and, and I was not familiar with this guy at all. And I was I was riveted when I was watching it. It's like, yeah. oh my god, this guy's fantastic. So I look he's forward good. to going back to his. He's really yeah, snarky,
2: funny, and well informed. And I think you'll really enjoy the video. I went back and looked at a couple of other videos he'd done. They're, they're super pro, super well done. So Cameron, a.k.a. Venus Theory, you got a couple of new fans here um, oh, nicely yeah. done on, on that video.
1: Well, and as we were saying, you know, it was so beautifully lit and so beautifully edited. And, you know, we notice those things when when people take the time and it's it's awesome. So, well, Jay, I say we jump into the stories. The first from music business worldwide on demand audio streams grew 13.5 percent to reach 616.5 billion in the U.S., and yeah. five other key stats from Luminate's mid-year report.
2: Yeah, and fans of this Big show will, stuff. you know, you you probably heard the interview uh, that we talked about with Jamie Marconette from Luminate. And so, you know, all these facts and figures. But I loved this piece because it's nice to see what other people are taking from this data. Right. Yes. Uh, they say that data is like a lamppost. You can use it to illuminate right? Or you can use it to lean on. And a lot of people use it to lean on. They say, see, see what that says? that That's what yeah. I was saying. Well, this piece was written by Murray Stassen, um, mm-hmm. someone who Our we, yeah, we we think very highly of uh, Murray Stassen over at Music Business Worldwide, and we, we cover a lot of his work. Um, but I really do want to go through, you know, some of his takeaways um, on this, because I think it's really key. Now, we've gone through sort of all of the high-level points um, about this report, but just just to kind of recap: According to Luminate, total on-demand streams—that's audio and video—it grew 30, almost 31 percent in the first half of 2023, and to reach 3.3 trillion streams. That's crazy compared to 2.5 trillion, you know, for the same period last year, so total on demand audio only streams grow
1: grew almost twenty three percent to two trillion that's crazy stunning absolutely stunning uh stunning and on demand song streams uh including audio view, uh, in, including audio and video grew fifteen point fifteen percent year over year to seven hundred and thirteen point five billion streams i mean we're talking just crazy numbers. And I think, uh, you know, uh, when I, when I got this before we interviewed Jamie, I mean, I just couldn't put, I was just riveted. I couldn't put it down. It's like, man, these numbers are unbelievable. And And they're uh, so positive, right? You and I were talking about that, like all of the physical
2: categories, which is, you know, uh, kind of the redheaded stepchild of the music industry to some people, except for vinyl, but all the physical things were up. Uh, even cassettes which we thought was really interesting. So let's let's take a dive into what Murray says, you know, are are some of these key takeaways, right? The first one, catalog share of US music consumption increased in the first half of the year, but only slightly. Luminate defines current as anything released in the in the 18 months prior to it getting streamed, downloaded or purchased. So we talk about this all the time. After 18 months it's considered catalog. But what Jamie pointed out when we talked to him is that even though catalog is up and it's a big part of the business, it's not like things from the 50s. It's things right. from the last three years uh, that yes. are really, you know, bumping that number up. So according to Luminate's media report, of the 538 million album sale equivalent, TAC, um, units recorded in the first half of 2023, 72, almost 73% Were registered as catalog music. That means that current music's total share of TAC total album consumption in the U.S. in the first half of 2023 was 27.2 percent, or 146.8 million TAC
1: units. Crazy. Now, just you know, I've talked about this before. What do you think that number should re? I'm sorry. Yeah, that, that age should be for what catalog is because as we said you know there's so much new music coming in and it takes a lot of time for these things to develop so it's not uncommon to see something that came out 18 months ago suddenly start to break and it's already catalog right so what do you uh, to me the number is like four years i'd like to see that extended to like four you know 48 months that seems more reasonable I, i i agree with you i think three to four years and then
2: maybe there's another category for deep catalog for things that are yes. decades old, you know, maybe yes. something like running up that hill when it had that moment, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. But I think it, it's a little bit confusing when you see that catalog is doing so well, but then you look in catalog and there are things in there like K-pop and Bad Bunny and Billy Eilish yeah. and, you know, Doja Cat and things like that. I mean, is that really catalog? Well, technically it's not being worked as a new release, so it's over 18 months, but I would love to see a little bit different kind of designation there.
1: Well, and these designations go back decades to, the, to, the, to a time when the, the industry was so different. Uh, another point that, that Murray brings up, the volume of new track uploads to DSPs may have hit a peak... Just in this last quarter one, as he says in May, we, meaning Music Business Worldwide, reported um, there were about 120,000 new tracks hitting music streaming services each day, which was citing Luminate data that an average of that many ISRCs were being added to music streaming services across audio and video platforms per day in Q1 of 2023, mm-hmm. that figure works out to about 10, a little over 10 million new tracks uploaded to the likes of these, uh, these distributors and other music streaming services for the first three months of the year, according to Luminate. They pointed out that if the number of average daily new track uploads continues at the same rate of 120,000 per day for the rest of the year... By the end of 2023, over 43 million tracks will have been uploaded to Spotify. Okay. Well, uh, let, me, a, let
2: me interject here because yeah. this is where I sort of, um, I, I disagree with some of these because they just said 43 million new tracks. These are not tracks, mm-hmm. right? right? What this is, is that, it's audio right. and video. The reason this number is mm-hmm. so high is because it includes SoundCloud and YouTube. And so these are audio and video Right, And they're ISRC codes. That's the unique identifier on the master side. So it's not unusual for a track to have four, five, six, ten ISRCs, meaning different versions of that. If you're looking at just songs, and that's the problem here, is sometimes we get confused with these ISRCs that are being uploaded and what are the songs. The number's about half that. So Glenn Peoples did this really cool article a while back about... You know, Spotify, it's about half that if you're just looking at ISRCs on the audio side. Now, when you include SoundCloud and YouTube, it's almost double that. So, you know, Murray's not wrong. And this analysis with Luminate is not wrong. But you kind of have to read the fine print because what happens is people read this and they go, oh, well, there's 112,000 tracks up, you know, like individual different tracks being uploaded on average Mm -hmm. every day. And that's really not what's happening.
1: Yeah, yeah. The whole ISRC thing is is it, it can it leads to confusion potentially. Yeah, because uh, like you said, there can be you know the, the same song can have a number of different ISRCs depending on lots of things, different mixes, different you know, all kinds of stuff. Sure. So, yeah, exactly. You know, when we spoke with Jamie, this next point was one of the things that we were also fascinated yes. with, which is the English language music is losing streaming share in the U.S. and globally.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's super fascinating. And, you know, I think a lot of it's K-pop, you know, uh, Bad Bunny is just a a beast. You know, mm -hmm. it says amidst the growing popularity of non-English language, you know, from the likes of Korea, Latin America, English language, music. I can't even say it, English language, music share, say that three times fast, of total on-demand audio streams. It's shrinking in the United States. And you're right. You know, Jamie brought that up to
1: us and it's not just in the U.S. It's in other territories as well. Yeah, exactly. So that's kind of exciting. Um, another thing, uh, number four: regional Mexican music is seeing significant growth in the U.S. And don't forget about Afrobeats. Yeah. And you know, and and we, one of the things that I keep thinking about is, you know, in in the day, in our day, when we were young people, we went into a record store with a very finite budget, <laughs> and you know, you had to make a, an economic decision oh, on yes. how much money was in your pocket, what albums. Do you want to buy, you know, and you could maybe look at four when you could really only afford two or three and kind of make a decision now, you know, it's, it, because of streaming, we can be adventurous and we can look around. And I think that's one of the things that has changed dramatically is that consumers now can go anywhere and listen to anything and any language. And music listeners are very curious. And I just love that about the streaming services, because now you can go and listen to music from another country or just things in a different language, because you're not tied to a, to a very limited budget. Yeah. And we're seeing that in these, in these reports that yeah. how, you know, how interesting that is. And, uh, you know, on this regional Mexican music being regional Mexican music being, seeing significant growth, it says Luminate offers snapshots of three specific genres that are seeing growth globally, including regional Mexican music, Afro beats, and J pop uh, music business worldwide had previously written about, um, this whole thing. Um, and according to Luminate, us on demand audio streaming, uh year to date of regional Mexican music was up 50% in the first wow, half of that's the year versus amazing. the same period for 2022.
2: Yeah. It's a big number. That's a huge number. And I think my favorite part of our conversation with, uh, with Jamie and it's also, you know, Murray uh, points out in this article as the, the fifth point is that 15% of the general population of the United States are what they call super fans. And that's yeah. going to lead us beautifully uh, in a minute into Glenn people's uh, newsletter this week, the ledger. He talks about super fans, but it, that super fan trend is so huge for this music industry. And, uh, so, according to the report, 15% of the general population of the US, they're super fans. So, what's super fan? According to the report, they spend 80% more on music each month versus the average US based music listener. And physical music buyers, vinyl, CD, cassettes, they're more than twice as likely, 128%, to be music super fans. So, breaking down super fan activity by genre, Luminate reports that K-pop fans spend 75% more money on music per month than the average music listener. Uh, Afro pop and Afro beats fans. Meanwhile, they spend 121% more money on music categories than the average U uh, S based music listener. And you and I talked about this a little bit, like we're both super fans. There are certain artists that we're going to buy whatever they put out, whether it's a t-shirt, yeah. whether it's vinyl, whether it's a cassette, even if I don't have a cassette player anymore, We want to support our artists and we want to have, we want to show them and show our fandom by buying these
1: physical things. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's jump over to Glenn's article. This is really interesting. It says, in January, three months before Reservoir Media put uh, rap group De La Soul's first six albums on streaming services for the first time, the company began taking pre-orders for reissues of classic albums uh, like Three Feet High and Rising and De La Soul is Dead, as well as De La Soul merchandise. The rap legend's recordings came to Reservoir Media through its 2021 acquisition of Tommy Boy music. Uh, And then they they had a little bit of a, a, a... some issues but then they they got it together uh so they quickly hash out a deal with de la Soul to reintroduce the world to its tommy boy catalog it also planned a big marketing campaign with the group to create exclusive merchandise and launch a slate of lps cds mm-hmm. and cassettes so smart but here's right? and here's what's really interesting selling directly to de la Soul's biggest fans has meant 30% of its pr- uh, physical products sold worldwide has gone through the group's website, which is wearedeleassol.com. Says Rael Lafargue, Lef- who's Reservoir Media's COO and president. In the process, Reservoir was able to tap into a consumer group of rising importance in today's music business: superfans. Twenty percent of wearedeleassol.com customers are repeat customers in just the first six months. Of the store opening, he said, and we will we will see superfans fill their carts with multiple copies and color variants of vinyl shirts, hoodies and more at checkout. So they, the band, or their distributor, is making a pile of money, again, tapping into this super fan network, and it's coming through their own website, and that's one of the things that Jamie mentioned to us when we were talking to him as well on the special episode, which is so much of this superfan activity is actually now happening on the band's own website, and that's huge. And as they put
2: it, D2C, direct-to-consumer, D2C. They talk about that in the Luminate report, and and Jamie called it out as something very important when we spoke to him. So De La Soul fans are part of a trend that's shaping the U.S. music business this year. Super fans, purchases of CDs, LPs, and cassettes to help their favorite artists help drive increase in all physical formats, which we mentioned, for the first six months of the year. Um, I just think that it's so crucial today to tap into that super fan mentality because there's not a ton of revenue for a lot of artists in pure play streaming. But if you can get fans, especially if it's D to C direct from your website, that's where you
1: win. Right. And yes, we did say cassettes, which still yeah. boggles my mind. But it's a it's thing. Fantastic. It's a thing. Absolutely. So uh, great article and of course, great piece by Glenn peoples as well. And on to our second story from HypeBot. Predatory ticket resellers, cost artists, confused fans millions, Neto study shows. And this is another interesting take on the entire ticket world. Which yeah, we haven't talked about this crazy very much. We've talked a lot
2: about Ticketmaster, Live Nation, Taylor Swift, all sorts of issues and Uh, potential solutions for some of these uh, problems, but this is one we haven't talked about a lot. Um, Concert ticket resellers like StubHub, Vivid, SeatGeek, they earn tens of millions of dollars each year at the expense of fans, artists, and venues, according to a new study by the National Independent Talent Organization, or NITO. And I'd like to talk about some of those findings, but before we do... I had the uh, privilege and the honor to talk to a couple of very smart people from NITO uh, this last week. Frank Riley, who's the president, he's also founder of High Road. Nathaniel Morrow, who's a chairperson at NITO, Um, he's also a booking agent. These are very experienced, uh, smart guys, and they kind of walk through what this NITO study that was just released, they walk through what it all means. So let's let's take a listen to that conversation. Frank, Nathaniel, thank you so much for speaking with me today. You both belong to NITO, which is the National Independent Talent Organization. I recently read a great piece on uh, Hypod by Bruce Houghton uh, with some rather shocking findings from a NITO study that just came out. Tell us a little bit about that study and some key findings.
0: Um, so, I guess to give a little background, Nito um, and its members have been worried about the ticketing world for a long time, um, and how it affects their artists. Uh, Nito, for those that don't know, uh, represents you know agents and managers in the independent artist system, and so the the ticketing world, it's been troublesome from the ticket fees perspective and from the secondary market perspective. People are buying up these massive amount of tickets to P- to concerts and then reselling them at crazy profits. We know it's a problem. A lot of our agents know it's a problem. A lot of our managers know it's a problem. All of our artists know it's a problem. And the reality is there's very little tools that we can do on our side to stop any of this. Um, the tools are very cumbersome. The tools are uh, you know very labor intensive and there's just a lot of stuff going on. And so what we kind of decided to do a few months ago was one of our members actually had access to one of these secondary ticketing platforms, you know, that the brokers use to figure out pricing, all these things. And then you look at historical sales numbers, all that kind of stuff. And through that, we just decided to kind of, you know, get a tally mm-hmm. of willing participants amongst the agents and managers in NITO. And um, you know, we collected some data on shows that you know we're selling on the secondary market so we got the face value price um and you know the capacity and all these things that we had access to this information um and then we tallied up all that kind of information that we had access to and then we looked into the sales reports from the secondary market um What we got back was expected, but it was still probably beyond even what we were expecting. Uh, It's basically an average of twice as much um, on the secondary market, on the resale sites. Uh, You're looking at um, a a cumulative profit from these resellers, about $41,000 per show. Um, And you're looking about an average of about 540 tickets, I think it is, per show being sold on the secondary market. Um, The crazy thing about this data, too, is, you know, we had... Uh, you know, the highest gr- uh, gross profit that we saw from these resellers was about $340,000 on one show. Uh, it's pretty crazy stuff that's happening right now in the secondary market. And wow. these people are just making these profits completely outside of the music ecosystem. You know, none of the artists, none of the venues, none of the crew, no one's benefiting from this. People are just solely going in there, buying up tickets that they feel are undervalued and reselling them for a significant markup. And the other
5: complication is that to, uh, several of the primary wow. ticket sellers are actually participating in the secondary market. So it confuses uh, the general public. It confuses the agents and managers, the people that actually live in this ecosystem. It's, uh, it's a really difficult and opaque system, and it's benefiting everybody but the artists. Wow, what, that's crazy. What can be done about this? I think there's a really easy solution. It's simple. Just put a limit on the amount of money that you can uh, sell a primary ticket for, uh, resell a primary ticket. If you take the profit motive out of the whole equation, the whole thing falls apart and disappears. Um, Now that's a lot easier said than done because recently there was a show up in New England. It had 8,000 capacity. It was an opening show for a a very, very, very large band on the first day of their tour. They sold 8,000 tickets. It was advertised really clearly that no tickets were transferable. You bought the ticket. You owned the ticket. There was no way that you could turn it to somebody else. Zero. It was on your phone. That was it. However, on the day of the show, two to three, the promoter informed the manager that there were two to 3,000 tickets sold through the secondary market. We can stop them from entering the venue. What do you wanna do? And the manager caved and said, I'd rather have the two to 3,000 people in the venue than outside really upset. It's super complicated. Do you punish the public? Who do you punish in this situation and how do you get this thing open and how do you get, you get it to change? It's baked into the system. That's the problem. It's part of the financial planning of venues and promoters, and there's almost no way out. And then there's the secondary sellers who are just parasiting off the whole system. Um, so, God knows, that's what we're working toward. We're trying to figure this out.
0: Yeah. One of the the key points, you know, Nito is a part of this Fix the Ticks Coalition led by Neva. Um, One of the things that you know is the baseline we're trying to do is just set the terms of resale the artist in the venue get to do that. We get to set the terms of resale regardless if you want to have open resale and you want to have your artist even participate in the secondary market go for it. But if the artist says absolutely not I want to shut this down any resale can be fined, then it should be, and I think that's the real key difference here is you just create a system where you know, if the terms and conditions are violated, there are hefty and heavy fines so much that no one can actually benefit and profit. And it has to be enforceable. But that's the legislation that we're hoping to write and hoping to get passed. Um, we'll see what happens. We're obviously compared to the the secondary sellers, they have a lot of funding behind them. There's a lot of people profiting off this. I think the reality here is Vivid seat, StubHub, SeatGeek, they charge the reseller and they charge the ticket buyer. They're getting a percentage on both. They have absolutely zero incentive to make that ticket cost less. And they're making a percentage based on how much it is sold for on both sides.
5: And Nathaniel, give them the cure numbers. Tell them what the difference is between when there's a guideline or guideposts on, on, on resale and when there is not. There are three states that have no, you can't, you, there's no limit on reselling your ticket. it's New York, Illinois,
0: and uh, Colorado. Yeah, there's more than that. There's, those are the three that we found, yeah. But I mean, the reality is we um, the cure set the fan-to-fan face value resale restriction. Um, you can't enforce that restriction in a lot of states. Three of them that we looked at were New York, Colorado, and Illinois. Um, but in California, you can set that restriction. And it has to be followed. So the numbers we looked at for the Cure for a Hollywood Bowl show. So we're talking that's like fourteen thousand, yeah, yeah, fourteen thousand tickets. There was twenty tickets sold on the secondary market that we found. For two shows at MSG, there was over three thousand tickets sold on the secondary market in the Cure show. And, and tell them how
5: much money was generated.
0: There was about $500,000, so about half a million <laughs> dollars was profited there. The crazier thing is there was about 1,800 tickets resold for the Chicago show and about the same amount of money was profited in the Chicago show. So you're talking about an even crazier upsell on those tickets.
5: Because the smaller and, venues or whatever, yeah.
0: And the other, know. the nuts thing about the Cure show too, I looked Frank, there was like, the numbers are really obscured because there was probably about only, I think there was about five or six Tickets sold for like $5,000 each. Yeah. And then like, Wait, the rep- can like- you
5: imagine what those Taylor Swift tickets were? They were $9,000 in like up in the upper balcony somewhere on the day of the show. I mean, there's so much money generated outside the system. And, you know, you look around and you're an artist and your audience shows up and pays $400 for a ticket for a ticket that is a $40 face value. And people go, wow, my, the artist is gouging. No, the artist is getting totally ripped off. This is fraud. There's no other way to to identify it. And it's been systemic through the system from the very beginning. This is known as artist exploitation. And uh, it's not acceptable and it's got to stop, period.
2: Uh, Thank you for your time today. I really appreciate you guys coming on.
0: Absolutely. Thank you, Jay. Thanks, Jay. Wow. Very interesting. I,
2: I, I just haven't heard people talk about this so much, now we did hear a little bit about the cure, and we did talk about that on this podcast where there were some issues in you know these resale markets um, and how much profit was made by these secondary you know ticket sellers in Chicago, they made a half a million dollars in New York. they made a half a million dollars. And I don't know what can be done with some of these things, and as you pointed out before we hit record, You know, there's nothing nefarious about, you know, like I can't go to the show this week and I'm going to sell my tickets. But some of the markup on some of these where they're being purchased for these secondary markets
1: is shocking. Mm -hmm. No, and tickets, of course, are already expensive. And if you're going to end up paying as this, one of the key findings is 203% of what that ticket face price is then that hurts. That really hurts. And uh, like you said, I'm I'm not sure how to fix it, but boy, something sure needs fixing. Yeah. Maybe
2: it's just um, having some transparency there, knowing um, what's happening here. Many of the tickets that were resold were for shows that weren't even sold out. And as they point out in the report, the average face value ticket price face value ticket price was $67.47 but the average resale price was $129.22 per ticket but
1: there were some that were going for 10 20 times that yeah it said one ticket was uh, resold for $1014 when the average face value price was just 79.55 so you know it's um Yeah, it is something that's got to be dealt with and we will continue to kind of report on the the situation in Ticketland, but uh, there's just so many different things going on that make it just so confusing and yet also so urgent to, in terms of trying to kind of remedy the situation. Yeah, absolutely. We'll see where that goes. Yeah, and and the
2: last thing I'll say on it really quickly is, you know, first, thanks for the guys for coming on. But, you know, while this this organization, NETO, you know, they're saying that ultimately they really want federal regulations that put more control in the hands of the artists. Some states are already doing that and they point that out uh, in, in this report, but uh, it's, it's something we haven't talked about a lot and, and you're absolutely right. We'll be following it very closely right. as we go
1: forward. And good work from Bruce Houghton on that as well. Yes. Uh, and our last story, Jay, this is a really good one too. It's from billboard. There's a free mobile app helping teens crash the hot 100. Okay. And I know what you're thinking but it's not TikTok. And yeah. that is where it gets interesting. But, you know, it's, uh, we've been following the rise of this for a long time. And,. Yowie, that is it's really getting exciting, and uh, well, you haven't called out what it is yet, yeah, exactly. I know because I want to, I want to, I want to kind of tease it, but it says, uh, (laughs) Band Lab that's that's the app. There's 60 million plus registered users have posted hundreds of millions of music videos on TikTok, and some are landing label deals. And uh, wow, talk about uh. Talk about new technology. He starts by saying uh, Jacob Burns, who's the director of, uh, of creative relations and content strategy for the music strategy and tactics team over at UMG, spends a good chunk of his day scrolling through TikTok. Last fall, he noticed a marked shift in the type of videos appearing on his For You page. It all turned into screen captures of people playing productions they made on BandLab, he yeah. said. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever seen so BandLab?
2: It is absolutely amazing. You know, um, I had the pleasure of sitting down with their um, CEO, uh, Meng uh, Ru uh when I was at South by Southwest. And for those that don't know, BandLab provides to 60 million plus registered users, uh, nearly 40% of whom are women. And they provide music making software that includes an arsenal of virtual instruments, as well as the ability to automatically generate multi part vocal harmonies to record, sample, manipulate. It is an amazing platform that I really wish, you know, when you and I were starting out, you know, out of high school playing in bands, it would have been so amazing to stand on the shoulders of giants. This platform is absolutely amazing at the high quality that you can do with just your phone.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the free app launched back in 2016 but has become almost inescapable over the last 12 months. 200 million videos tagged with the hashtag BandLab appeared on TikTok in April. The music industry the music industry has taken note of the case, of the ease, I should say, with which users can make songs. Labels love Band Lab because it allows artists to create music for very cheap, says one music attorney, and the velocity that some songs have picked up on the streaming platforms. There are random kids out there generating streams like crazy, says Nima Nasseri, VP of A and R Strategy at UMG. Um, their monthly listeners are going from zero into the millions. And they're doing it from the palm of their hand. Yeah, it's, it's
2: really a godsend for new developing artists. And it's also a community where you can share with each other, collaborate and learn. It is a, a, a stunning platform. If, if you haven't tried out BandLab, make sure you go in there and take a look. Um, but there was a, a quote from Jordan Weller, who's the head of artist and investor relations at uh, IndieFi, right? That's a platform that helps independent act Uh, find investors and he said that it's like other segments of the music internet that explode one artist broke and now you're seeing a ton of them go that's uh, what makes it attractive for the community now all these other kids recognize they can build careers off of band lab and that's a potential pathway
1: yeah and I I haven't noticed how many what are the costs for band lab do you recall it's It's a free platform but there are things that you can purchase on the platform Right. Exactly. Exactly. So um, they were saying, I know you mentioned uh, Meng, Meng Ru is that how you pronounce? Yeah. Meng Ru Yeah. Right. Yeah. Qua. Sorry. He said he always hoped to have an artist chart with a song made on his platform, but the fact that it already happened last year with this artist, David, whose romantic homicide peaked at number 33 on the Billboard Hot 100, was ahead of schedule. <laughs> He said, good on him, a little ahead of schedule. When he co-founded BandLab, he wanted to capitalize on the technological shift from a desktop ecosystem to a mobile one. Uh, Phones represented a musical instrument in everybody's pocket. He also aimed to open up audio tools to the large swath of the global population that couldn't afford iPhones, which came with another digital audio workstation, GarageBand. BandLab makes money by taking a cut for artist services like distribution, and promotion yeah and, uh, so what a clever idea and, and not everybody has the
2: same opinion um, about uh, band lab but artists love band lab and they say it's remarkably frictionless to cut a vocal to smear it with uh, effects or whip it up in a loop it's also, It also has an artificial intelligence powered song starter uh, this is a function that can automatically generate musical ideas Based on a few inputs, uh, though none of the artists who spoke for this story used that particular feature, BandLab is easier than GarageBand. Everything is in front of your face. Um, so we're watching these new developing artists adapt to this platform that has functionality like some of these other things like GarageBand, but so much more. And it really makes it easy for them. I think one of the challenges in our era when we grew up recording was, man, you had to have an audio engineer. And it was Ampex 456 tape. And it was a recording studio. Man, you had to have an expert. And then some of these digital audio workstations have made it easier for people. But you still have to be fairly technically savvy to to do these things. And this is one of those like GarageBand was sort of a game changer because it made it so even mm-hmm. knuckleheads like me could put things together
1: and sounded, you know,
2: pretty professional. But Band Lab just takes that to a whole nother
1: level. Well, they quote Mike Karen, who's the founder of the, uh, the publisher and independent label APG and a producer. He says, the more convenient you can make something, the more it is going to be adapted. He said, I used to buy full recording studios for people, Pro Tools, interfaces, $20,000 packages of equipment. In contrast, BandLab is free and portable. I encourage my artists to use the platform as a way to get down spontaneous vocal ideas, he says. He thinks most artists still don't fully understand how many different tools are available within BandLab's suite of tech. Uh, Meng says that 40% of users work with more than two uh, core creation features, but he hopes to boost that number to 99%. So like all... platforms or programs a lot of people just kind of go in and find what they need yes and they don't step out of those those boxes but it sounds like there's just a lot more tools on there but again making it easy to do
2: and it's on
5: your
1: Handheld,
2: but you're right, that's true on every platform. I mean, how many people use Photoshop? You know, they use two or three different things to either edit or, Word, or crop or Excel, exactly yeah. right. So, but not everyone in the music industry is sold on Band Lab yet. You know, one senior executive who requested anonymity, uh, to speak frankly, he, he was impressed with the tech. He said that kids have never sounded this good at home, but so far, he continues, artists using Band Lab haven't become recognizable stars. You know, Meng acknowledges there are doubters who who think that this is a fad, but he's quick to offer a rebuttal. There are billions of people around the world who don't have access to music making on their mobile devices. But he says that, you know, we're just starting to scratch the surface. There's a lot more to come. And they have had songs chart, by the way, that were created on BandLab. But it's sort of in its infancy... But as we've been reporting for a while, I remember when it was like 30 million users and then 40 million users. Now it's like over 60 million uh, people are using this platform and they can easily uh, manipulate and create uh, art, create music. And I just think that's such a healthy thing.
1: No, absolutely. And again, we talk about the dramatic reduction in costs. So, you know, in our era as young people, I remember paying like 175 bucks an hour to go into a recording studio, which you know I, at the time the minimum wage was like four dollars an hour, so that was a lot of money. Oh yeah. And then when we when we see the development of a lot of these digital audio workstations, and now obviously, you know. Uh, garageband comes free on any mac device or on on any Apple device but now we're talking again about a further reduction and those tools are built in it's essentially free it's in a handheld device and a lot of people I knew even before bandlad came out they would just go to to you know into their phone and just sing parts you know because they were they just thought of something or they thought of a lyric and they would just kind of yeah. type it in and just use the the you know the kind of the little basic recorder to record something and then return back home and put it into their DAW and build on top of that. But here it is. All the tools are already in your handheld device. It's remarkable. It's a wonderful world. Yes, it is. And on that note, Jay and I are going to wrap up episode 153. Yes, it is time to do that as we go out into the heat. Uh, I want to thank our sponsors, Music Business Association, Hypod, and Bands in Town for doing the business. Jay and I certainly appreciate that. And of course, we appreciate you, the listener. We can't thank you enough for checking us out when you do, and uh, it does not go unnoticed, nor does it go unappreciated. So thank you mucho. So on behalf of my good buddy, Jay Gilbert, where his Hogwarts tunic of, of, uh, being a prof- professor. Uh, I say thanks and we'll see you next time on the your morning coffee podcast.
3: You've been listening to your morning coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news. You need to know.